Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host, the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Christopher, I've been saving this one for a while. It's one of my favorite interviews of all time, and it's one in which I felt like I personally connected with this person. And this person was Alanis Morissette back in 2002, seven years after Jagged Little Pill, but still riding the wave and the and the crest of that popularity. And this was such a big deal to me. I'm actually nervous to hear it again, but I also know that while my questions may not have been great, her answers were fantastic, and I'm so proud of what, what we got out of this interview. Well, I have heard it, and it's fantastic, Tom. This is one of my favorite interviews that we have done in the entire history of the show. Oh, yay. There's a connection that you make between interviewer and subject. It's like, like the one that a photographer has to make with somebody that they're shooting. It's intimate. It's funny and very revealing of an artist who made an initial impact on pop music like no other. For sure. Alanis Morissette. Yeah, yeah. And also this week, we have an interview with a person that we've heard by a few people was the worst interview of all time. (laughs) And I've got something to completely contradict this. I think it's an early 80s interview Mm -hmm. with Lou Reed. And... Christopher, is it not fantastic? It is. I, he's like so forthcoming. It's yeah. like what was you know what was in his coffee that day. I know it was great. It was great. So I can't play. I can't wait for everyone to hear those clips from Lou Reed. And if we have time, we're going to get to some cool song facts to end off the show. Let's get started with Alanis Morissette. First, let's hear a song from Jagged Little Pill. It's not- That's You Oughta Know from Jagged Little Pill 1995 as we spring forward to 2002 with Alanis. I still love that song. Yeah. Man, it's, oh. it, it's funny when something is that huge, you, you, you wonder, is it going to stand up all those years later? And to this day, it still sounds It amazing. really does. And I think yeah. the pop charts are missing that kind of sound right now. Hmm. Tom, throughout this interview... Alanis is completely engaged, which I know from experience can be difficult with an artist who's been interviewed as frequently as she has. And when an interviewer knows their subject's music and career, well, it's a compliment to the artist and almost always gives you a better result. You'll notice that I said almost (laughs) always. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But for me, the hallmark of this interview from 2002 is how self-aware Alanis is. And you get the feeling that it's hard-won knowledge. Think of what she had to process at such a young age. And you touch extensively on this in the interview. She not only sold a boatload of records, but she also acquired instant iconic status, and her influence is felt to this day. And you know what? It does not matter how experienced, how evolved, or how protected you are, you cannot prepare for what happens when everyone wants a piece of you, to yeah. throw in a little Britney Spears quote. There. Sure, sure. <laughs> this interview is in three parts. In the first segment, one of the things she talks about is relationships, and she has some very interesting things to say. Here you are. You seem like a, like a veteran of the music industry, and you are, and almost an institution in Canadian music, and it's kind of hard to fathom that, I think. But, and then there's a realization that you're only 26 years old. Like it's, it seems like you've been around for a very long time, and in Canada, you have been, um, and yet... And yet you're still so young. How do you view your career at this point? I view my career as, as being in the you know the beginnings of it. Really, I, I think in in terms of songwriting, I feel like I haven't even really begun, and I feel like there's so much more to be done. And I feel that way after every record's finished. So I'm wondering if there will ever be a point where I'll feel like I've uh, 
I'm in the middle because I always feel like I'm at the beginning. So. And that's so interesting because for, for, for so many artists, what you've achieved would be like the pinnacle. And, and I suppose that at some point, it, was it scary to you to think that, oh my God, I'm 21 years old or 20 years old mm. and people think that I've peaked? Right. How, how did you feel about that concept or did it ne- never really dawn on you personally? I think it really depends on um, what element is being focused on, you know, if the focus was being external success or sales of records, literally that, then, you know, I think Jagged Little Pill is definitely something that is its own entity and has its own story and and craziness attached to it. But in terms of my own evolution as a writer and as a person, there is no arriving, I don't think, ever, thankfully. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I don't feel like... I wasn't going to talk about Jagged Little Pill until a little bit later, but now that we're on the topic, did you feel like you were in the eye of the storm? when when that was out and and you know we knew we know what it looked like from outside of that storm mm-hmm. what did it look and feel like from inside the storm um it definitely felt like a fish in a fishbowl and there was a part of it that was very exciting because you know I was meeting so many new people and traveling and traveling being one of my favorite things to do and um i think the the key for me that uh that kept it from being entirely overwhelming to the point where i just wanted to leave forever and i came damn close to wanting to do that was just remembering why it was that i was doing what i was doing you know and coming back to that and thankfully my manager would be very kindly put that to me every time i would feel a little overwhelmed so yeah, yeah. and you had the opportunity and the good sense to step away from it and that must have been like the healing process the process that probably takes us to where we are today yes definitely stepping off the uh stepping off the crazy treadmill was was imperative for me to want to continue living at that point i mean it was there was no choice for me it was either that or just wanting to go away forever so um it was a death of sorts a conceptual one that that benefited me greatly and uh it it reminds me now that if ever that happens again you know it has happened in little fits and starts the best place to go is just go within and, and step away from all of it. So. You've, you've talked um, in the past about the value of silence mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a concept that's really kind of foreign to North Americans. Yeah. And in fact, I think that many North Americans are afraid of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do you, um, what do you think... Tell me about the importance of silence to you and, mm-hmm. and why you think that many of us are afraid of it. Yeah, I mean, I think many people are afraid of it, but I also know that I'm definitely afraid of it at times, too, particularly if things have been really noisy. So um, silence to me, you know, I come face to face with all of my issues. And if, you know, if I have fears or or wounds that I haven't healed or questions or confusions, they're all, you know, they're all right up against my nose when I'm silent. So when I have the courage and the wherewithal to delve into all of that, silence is my best friend. But but when I'm being really mean to myself and I'm not taking care of myself, silence is the great enemy. So it really is a great gauge. If I'm really comfortable in a silence, even if it's a three-minute silence, um, that's a good sign. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, one of the great inhibitors for writing that you've talked about is pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether and, and you know, just over many conversations that I've had, pressure seems to be our own perception of what pressure is. Right. Um, but there's also... Yeah, and I think that, like writing, for example, writing a hit, like it's just one of the worst things you can ever think of. And everybody I've spoken to, um, so many uh, people have said that, true songwriters, that is, that said that you can't write a hit. You just write what's true to your heart. Right. 
And uh, I've had some people that I've worked with over the years have the audacity to ask for me to go write a specific kind of song, and I wanted to slap them. You know, so basically I, I write a song about what it is that I'm experiencing at the time, and I can't, you know, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not someone that you can just kind of commission something to. I can be asked to write a song for a movie or whatever it is, and if I'm inspired to do it, I will do it, but... You know, I've I've come I've come across many people over the years um, who don't have a great understanding of the concept of nurturance for the artistic process, and and that could be one of the most frustrating things. But as far as pressure goes, deadlines are great as long as they're not oppressive. And uh, I guess it's up to each individual person to figure out what oppressive means. You know, mm. sometimes a deadline of you need something by tomorrow is brilliant, and in, in other cases it can be the worst thing and can kill the whole project right there. On the songs on the album, there's a lot of inward looking towards yourself there's a lot of looking at the other person studying them closely are they aware when they're in the relationship with you that you're you're so keenly aware of the relationship right like it's so fascinating and it and and just just from reading it it looks a little obsessive <laughs> and i again no disrespect yeah. intended but i'm looking at this going oh my god like does my wife think of all these things while we're just having ch a chat over dinner yeah, she you might know? she might <laughs> i don't know it. and so and so does uh does does the man in your life does he know that that he's kind of being put under this under this little uh microscope mm -hmm. or d does he find out afterwards when you've written a song about him I think most, most people who engage in a friendship with me or a romantic relationship with me, I think they have a sense of what they're getting into. Um, certainly the person I'm with now uh, has raised the bar for me um, because for, most, for the most part, I've been too much for most people I've been with and, and I was really hard on myself for that. But in this new relationship, I feel like he's almost too much for me, <laughs> which is a great turnaround. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if anyone is going to be friends with me or, or be a boyfriend or whatever... Um, there's an element of them having to know what they're getting into at this point. Okay, so that's part one of my interview with Alanis Morissette from 2002, um, promoting the album Under Rug Swept. So, did you hear she did it twice in that first part? She implied that she was at the point where she almost took her own life. Did you hear it? She said, where I just almost decided to go away forever when it came to my life. Go back if you need to. I listened to it again okay, this morning. I didn't take it that way. Oh. Anyway, maybe I'm wrong, but I think, having listened to it a few times, that I think that she was in such a bad way that mm. she was thinking seriously about her own mortality and what to do about it. I took it that she was wanting to abandon all that she had created through her hard work. Right. Okay. But you know what? I think the audience will be the judge. <laughs> That's right. Just roll back if you need to. If you're listening on the podcast, just roll back into that part. And she says it twice. And I'm kind of going, she is, she's saying a veiled reference to that. So anyway, um, and she also talks about the value of silence in that. And that was, uh, mm. it was just excellent. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words and part two of Tom's interview with Alanis Morissette. You know, I want you to just think about the end of the last segment where she talked about being too much for many of her boyfriends, but her new boyfriend was a little bit too much for her, <laughs> right? Now, let's think about that. She started dating Ryan Reynolds in 2002. I don't know if that's hmm. the boyfriend she's talking about, but it was around that time. So that's quite interesting. Tom's cool artist facts. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, for me, part two is the 
analysis segment in which you kind of play the role of therapist or or priest <laughs> as we hear some <laughs> wonderful confessions uh, from Alanis. And that's something that she is very good at, I find. After uh, supposed, um, uh, supposed Album, you, you actually played uh, the songs to the people that, who, that the songs were written about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you do that with this album? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, there's there's a part of me that that believes that I owe nothing to anyone and, and no one owes anything to me. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't give to people that I believe I'm inspired to give to, but there's no owing of any sort. So, um, And there's certain things that are that are written for the sake of my wanting to liberate myself, like songs like Hands Clean. I wrote for the sake of, of wanting to speak the truth and not silence myself anymore. So... Because it wasn't written for the sake of revenge, there's nothing to apologize for. It's just my telling my own story. So, I'm kind of having a hard time figuring out some of the guys in the songs. Okay. Uh, in some ways, they seem like uncaring, oblivious, well, I'll say jerks for now. Okay. And, for and now. yet you seem to still be carrying the torch for them. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, no, I mean, some of them I still am. And some of them I'm, I'm entering into that phase where, um, you know, the the kinds of men that I used to be attracted to, the kinds of people for that matter, um, are changing, you know. So I'm ge- I'm entering into a very unfamiliar phase where, you know, where I allow men to be kind to me, where I allow people to, to care for me in very overt ways. And and these were ways that I used to, at, at many points, just kind of reject outrightly. So, um, so it's a new phase for me, but definitely I still battle, you know, feeling affected by certain kinds of people. I think there's so many complex elements to relationship and one of the main ones that I think about is that, you know, fathers and brothers, they create the original template by which women, as they grow older, measure measure all other men in their life until they don't, until they grow out of that or until they make a conscious effort to change what their template is. And and so those are the many things that I've been grappling with over the years. Mm-hmm. But the men in your <clears throat> life, specifically your father and your brother, and mm-hmm. you just have one sibling? Two brothers. Two brothers. Yeah. So were they a good um, um, template for the male species? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like any relationship. In some ways, absolutely. In a lot of ways, absolutely. And in other ways, it was a little more complex, to say yeah. the least. So, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, I'll get back to the album in a sec, but tell me a little bit about uh, about growing up in Ottawa. What kind mm-hmm. of a girl were you? What kind of a little girl were you? When I was little, I was extremely precocious, maybe even a little bit obnoxious, and just really fun and, and you know, just very good-natured and good-hearted and extremely sensitive. That's that's my thing. When I think back to that time, I just think I was a little bit of an emotional sensitivo. <laughs> yeah, is that right? Yeah. It's funny because um, you, you said on Much Music a couple of years ago that you, you'd go back, if you could choose any time to go back to, you'd go back to um, grade one because you were really popular when yes, you were Yes, grade six. one rocked. And, uh, <laughs> and my son is in that grade and he is all those things that you described. He's precocious and you know he's going to be an artist in some sort of way and cool. all that and he's in a choir and he's all those mm. things. So it's really interesting. Maybe he'll turn out to be yeah, you know, songwriter. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> You come across. Oh, okay, hang on. I still haven't finished with what you were like. So, okay. so what were your aspirations as a as a kid? I have a feeling you're kind of living that dream. Am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, I, when I was younger, I wanted to be a teacher, and then as I got older, I was thinking of being a a psychologist. But <clears throat> I very much loved art too, so I loved to dance and write and paint and write poetry, and and I didn't really know I could sing until probably around nine years old. So. Um, you know, I was just very artistic. I loved creating and expressing myself. It was my favorite thing to do. So, the song "So Unsexy" is so interesting because there you are, 
Alanis Morissette, multi-platinum artist. Uh, so visit, uh, you know, you, you, like again, you seem pretty peaceful with yourself, uh, and, and you're you're an inspiration to millions. And yet, in that song, you're reduced to feeling unsexy, and again, deeply vulnerable, kind of like a 13-year-old. Mm. Tell me about that kind of feeling. He just got to the point in romantic relationships, in particular, in certain friendships, where. You know, any little thing that they would do that would that would resemble any sign of rejection would send me into next week and just would really affect me in a way that was almost embarrassing. You know, as I got older, it was like, okay, am I going to keep riding this roller coaster of someone else's perception of me? And, you know, the more I understood it, the more I understood that that my abandoning myself was the issue at hand more so than anything else, the, the clearer it became for me. So... Someone can do anything they want to mean negative or positive or whatever those words mean. Um, if I'm taking care of myself, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But if I've abandoned myself and I'm not feeling that great, I do ride the roller coaster of their opinion. So, so that's basically what the song's about to me. What uh, what pisses you off? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. you like, can't say that. Okay. <laughs> um, my, well, I know uh, he doesn't pick up after himself, but uh. yeah, it pisses me off. Me, being being chronically misunderstood by someone that I am in a relationship with um, is is really enraging to me. But it begs the question: Well, then why are you still there? Which I totally take responsibility for. Um, what else pisses me off? Um, sometimes I get really frustrated at the consciousness level of us as human beings. I just wish that we could all just wake the f*** up and just grow up and, and evolve much quicker than we've been evolving. But I, I, there must be some divine purpose for this for the rate at which we evolve. Um, what else and I get angry about? I get angry when uh, someone doesn't listen very well, particularly men that I'm dating. Uh, when I'm not... Uh, <laughs> when a man doesn't listen very well to me, I, I, I get really angry. But it has to happen, you know, a bunch of times in a row. And now, at least, I can just say, okay, well, then I'm either going to express myself and say, this isn't working, this style of communication isn't working for me, or if they, you know, if they really don't want to change it, then I have the choice and the option to leave. Whereas before, I just thought, you know what, there's no choice in the matter. I either have to control this and change them, or I just have to put up with it. And those two options suck. So there's another option these days, which is good. Mm -hmm. Are you going to have kids? At some point, mm-hmm. yeah. I just wanted to, because uh, we talk, we, we've talked about a few global issues and, and kind of making the world a smaller place, and, but mm-hmm. also seeing the world uh, as it really is, not just from our narrow perspective. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking about when you have kids, the world goes from being this very, very, very big place mm. to this extremely small person. Mm. And that's the, all of a sudden, that's the world to you. Mm. And it's going to be a really... Uh, fascinating. I can't re- wait to hear the album about that one. You know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's just that's you know that's just as important. The, the dynamic between a mom or a dad and a child is like that's it. That's the that's square one. You know, and and the rest of it comes from that place. So I also was considering adopting at some point, which could be good because we're ridiculously overpopulated as it is. So I don't think I'll be having many children if I have any. Well, that's the end of part two of our Alanis Morissette interview, Tom. Did you notice that she's pondering whether or not to have children? Right. And since then, because this was 17 years ago, she's had two kids. Wow. So good for her. And it's weird to listen to someone pondering that kind of thing way back in the past and then finding out what's happened to them. It's, this is weird with every interview that we do. If you're new to the show, what we do is we play classic interviews from the past and then play the best parts of them. But some of the best parts are also the most poignant ones because... 
the artist doesn't know what's going to happen to them, but we do. Very interesting concept, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of artists, if you listen to their interviews 17 years later, don't yeah. come off too well, but she comes off as a very self-aware and deeply thinking individual. Tom, this, this is a lot to take in this interview. And in the next segment, she gives more of the sort of profile of the young artist, like more settled with her success, realistic about what it all means. And you did actually ask her about her worst date. You know, Tom, hats off, buddy. Oh, this was a fun <laughs> segment to do for sure. Let's have a listen. What do you do for fun? Uh, I love being outside. I love kayaking and um, playing sports, playing tennis. I'm a movie-aholic, so I could watch a thousand movies in one week if I have some time off. Um, spending time with friends and traveling are my favorite things to do. Tell me about the illusion of fame, what it promises and what it delivers. I'm sure it promises um, different things to different people at different times. But to me, when I was younger, it was purported as being something that would solve everything and every sadness would turn to joy and any insecurity would be you know would be calmed and bombed and so you know once once I experienced fame I realized that all it really did was it amplified everything that was already there to begin with um and I not not only now do I think fame is an illusion I think everything's an illusion so I just kind of have fun with it Ultimately, my highest vision of my own life is that I just have fun with it and I dip my toe in it when I want to and then I pull my toe out when I want to. So, um, But fame is, is exciting. It offers an amazing opportunity to contribute, which is exciting, which is why I'm still here, which is why I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. For someone with such a strong social conscience, do you ever feel guilty about making as much money as you do? No, not at all. I love money and I welcome it and... I also love giving it away, and I love spending it on myself, and I love giving it to my family, and I feel like we're all, um, there's so much abundance in this world, and I would encourage anyone to, you know, continue, continuing to follow what it is that they would want to do and have it manifest in whatever financial reward or not that it would manifest in, and um, I think it's a matter of defining for oneself what enough means. You know, like for some people, enough might mean $100 billion, and for someone else, enough might mean $100 a year. So, you know, it's, it's everyone's individual take on what enough means. And I've always believed that I had enough, even when I had, quote-unquote, nothing. When I had no money, I felt so abundant. So it's more of a mindset to me. And uh, the money is incidental, and it's great, and it's I'm not overly attached to it, so... That's a great answer, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> a lot of female stars um, uh, complain that they can't get a date. Right. Because women, uh, men are intimidated by successful women. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found that to be true? I've never had a problem getting a date, um, although I also do know that some people may be intimidated by me at, at times. But I happen to attract a lot of people into my life who, who just seem not to be. <laughs> so that's good. You said that you like to be inspiring to uh, your fans and to other people, but not worship by them. Mm-hmm. Explain what you mean by that. I just believe we all can inspire each other. Any, any sense of separation or chasm between me and another person is probably one of the most depressing things that I can think about. Um, so anytime I'm put up on a pedestal or, or being held up as someone that they could never be or qualities that I have that they could never possibly have, first of all, I think it's completely untrue. And secondly, um, it doesn't resonate with, with 
you know, with what I believe in everyone having their own distinct gift or their own distinct individual, you know, passion or expression. So um, I love I love being someone who um, can inspire or affirm or validate, but being someone who is seen as this um, untouchable, unreachable person, um, I'm not really as excited about that. I'm going to ask you rapid-fire questions. Answer okay. them quickly okay. if you want. Yeah. Favorite movie? Uh, Rushmore. <laughs> I love that movie. That's yeah. good. Favorite current album? Uh, Rufus Wainwright Poses. And he is from here, is he not? Yeah, he is. He's Canadian. Yeah, he is because uh, one of the McGarrickle sisters is his mom. Hmm. And uh, Loudon Wainwright, of course, is, right. uh, is his dad. Cool. Uh, the one thing you can't travel without? My pillow. You carry around a certain pillow. Yeah, Tempur-Pedic. <laughs> um, yeah. Your first kiss? Uh, eighth grade. I'm not going to say his name because he'll be horrified. Eighth grade. Uh, eighth grade. <laughs> How was it? <laughs> it, was, uh, it wasn't my favorite kiss. But, uh, but hey, I didn't have that much relativity. So I thought, wow, if this is what kissing is going to be for the rest of my life, I don't know how interested I am. Isn't that horrible to say? I'm not saying his name, though, so, <laughs> so it's okay. My first kiss, our, our teeth clanged against each other. Oh. And it was just, it wasn't like, a, we didn't know what we were doing. It was so very awkward. Funny, like, yeah. 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 And then she made some comments and it wasn't good. Ah! Um, uh, your worst date. Oh, man, I've had a few of them. My worst date. My worst date was um, not that long ago, actually. And, um, Is it with I didn't... the guy you're currently with? No. Um, but I just didn't get a word in, and the, it wasn't a back-and-forth thing. Uh, it wasn't a conversation. It wasn't a mutual curiosity. It was someone just talking at me the whole time, and there is no quicker way to, to turn me off than to do that. I, can't, I find that so hard to believe because you're really so interesting. Like, anyway, uh, yeah. what's your favorite sport to play? I love playing basketball. It's my favorite. Uh, favorite pig out food? Don't say alfalfa honey. <laughs> I won't. That's not my favorite pig out food. Um, I love great pig out food for me. Definitely macaroni and cheese. Good Canadian girl. Yeah. Not a girl. <laughs> you can um, take the girl out of Canada. The most beautiful place on earth? Anywhere near an ocean to me. It's the most beautiful place on earth. I know you get asked this all the time. What does, uh, what does, what does Canada mean to you? I'll just throw a bunch of generalizations out. I just I feel like Canada is is a place not only that I'm so happy to have been born and raised in because I truly believe people here are very communicative, very engaging, very interested, very curious, very alive. Um, they just delve far deeper than if I'm to generalize than most people I meet. You know, um, it's also a very aesthetically beautiful country. Any movies coming up? Yes, but uh, but still still talking with the people about it, and it's a long process, but it's an exciting one. So yeah, you make a great god, by the way. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> that was Alanis Morissette on Famous Lost Words with my co-host Tom Jokic. And Tom, we've talked about the feeling that you're left with after an interview, and in some cases, there's there's two interviews that I, that I did where I thought, okay, that was great, mm-hmm. I, and and for example, I was. You know, thrilled when George Harrison complimented me by saying, "Wow, we really got into some things that I that I never get into in interviews," and I took that to be, you know, that's the nice ultimate feeling. compliment. Yeah. But the connection that you made with Alanis in this interview 
is incredibly rare, I think. It felt like that to me, and I didn't know, you know, 17 years later how that would turn out to be as rare as it was because I can't actually remember a better connection that I had with someone. You know, I'm very happy with my Don Henley interview, mm-hmm. um, and I'm very happy with the Paul Stanley interview that we just that we just uh, right. aired a few weeks ago. But this one was a little bit different. And I remember at one point, one point in the uh, Atlantis interview, I said, oh, man, you've got me all messed up here. I've lost my notes and all that. You, you hear it at one point, and she says, you know what? This is a great show. Don't worry about it. And and so it was such a compliment, and she had a lot of fun. And I think you can tell how much fun she had by how much she was laughing at the end, right? Like, we were really making her laugh, even to the point where at the end, um, uh, you know, I tell her what a great god she made because she just played god in Dogma, which, <laughs> oh, is, right. the which was great. Picture, yeah. So it, it was really meaningful to me that that connection did happen, and it felt like a personal connection. And listen, you know how some people have charisma. I've talked about it with Chris Martin from Coldplay. Yeah. Um, uh, Keith Urban. Like you, he That's walks a you got room. it or you don't thing. That's right. And boy, did she have that. You want it. You wanted to be her friend and you felt like when you were in that moment, you were. Whether that's just kind of a personal charm, that's fine. That's but her man, gift, I think. That's, yeah. Yeah. And I have, a, there's one or two friends in my life that I have that every time I'm with them, they feel, it feels like they light you up. And she was one of those people. And that's why it was so meaningful and fun and rewarding for me as an interviewer. But also, the content of what she shared was extraordinary. I well, thought. you kept her on point, which is interesting because I remember her interviews from that time period and from a little before that. And she got very sort of spiritual mm-hmm. in her, you know, and, and it got the interview subject matter to me got really vague in a lot of those moments. Yeah. Whereas you brought her down to earth by talking about things like her worst date. Yes. Like that's exactly what you need to do in a situation like that. It was fantastic. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah, it was such a joy to do. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Christopher, several weeks ago, we talked to Lori Brown. Our right. dear friend, well, your dear friend, and like I'm thrilled to, to have made her acquaintance because she is lovely and so knowledgeable. And we talked about her great time that she had, her great connection with David Bowie. Speaking of connections, like we were in the last right, segment, right, right, right. Um, and we asked her, other than Gene Simmons, who is my worst interview, because <laughs> she did mention Gene Simmons in your book called "Is This Live." Um, we asked her who's the worst interview, and she said, Lou Reed, Lou Reed, Lou Reed. And, and those were her top three worst <laughs> interviews. And so it was thrilling for me to find these Lou Reed clips um, uh, in the library, in our archives, and it's just exciting to be playing them for you. First of all, let's have a listen to Walk on the Wild Side. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Walk on the wild side, Lou Reed from 1972. Tom, who doesn't think of the Velvet Underground when you consider Lou Reed's legacy? He recorded four albums in as many years as a member of that band for whom the term influential is barely adequate to describe the hold they had on the imagination of a generation of artists. And even though their debut only sold 30,000 copies, as Brian Eno said, everyone who bought one started a band. (laughs) The Sex Pistols, Joy Division, The Smiths, R.E.M., Nirvana, and The Strokes all owe a creative debt to Lou Reed. As Bono said, quote, 
every song we've ever written was a ripoff of a Lou Reed song. <laughs> Unquote. Hyperbolic, perhaps, but it is Bono that we are referencing sure. here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Now, after leaving the Velvets in 1970, Lou moved back home. Can you imagine that? <laughs> uh, hi, Dad, I'm home. <laughs> His dad paid him 40 bucks a week working at his accounting oh, firm. Oh, man, you know life's bleak. That's that a happens. walk on the bleak side. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> it wasn't long before he began his 35-plus years as a solo artist. His biggest and arguably most memorable song from the solo years was on 1972's Transformer, produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson. Right. Lou has some very interesting thoughts in this interview on the success of Walk on the Wild Side. Our interview is from around 1982. The album that was out then is called The Blue Mask. And in contrast to the Lou that many of my colleagues <laughs> encountered it much, where I think they used words like taciturn or hostile. <laughs> <laughs> Those are two completely different words, too. Well, That's they're degrees great. of the same yes. thing. <laughs> Anyway, Lou is positively effervescent here. Wow, that's a strong <laughs> word, too. Okay. Anyway, or as he refers to himself, the new improved Lou. <laughs> I love that. He talks about the source for the title of the album, Growing Up in Public. I was referring to myself. That had, uh, had crossed my mind that many things that happened to me uh, um, privately were also shown publicly. Uh, I hate to use the word changes, but different things that happened were happening in public. I mean, if I was an idiot, it was in public. And if I was good, it was in public too, whether uh, I liked it or not. You might wonder how Lou feels the Velvet Underground records stand up. I think any Velvet Underground album can be played today, and it's still pertinent and fun and uh, good to listen to. And I'm told periodically, or I read periodically, about an upsurge of interest in the Velvet Underground and what an effect we had. And uh, I usually ask people who bring that up, what, what influence are you talking about? And they say, well, you know, three-minute songs are, are uh, just songs that rage right along and uh, that uh, are anti, you know, I hate this and I hate that and all that. Now, I don't think that's what the Velvet Underground was about, but it's interesting that some people think that. But uh, that's not an influence of which I'd be proud. You know, I'm prouder of, uh, if they said the influence was the desire to put out uh, some music that was um, very real and human and not slick and about real things and real people and that somebody of uh, intelligence and sensitivity could listen to without becoming embarrassed and without being pretentious. It's a delicate line. He expresses an unexpected love of pop music. Part of me likes idiot music, you know, that kind of mindless pop that gets popular, and I like that. I have a lot of that on my jukebox. Um, I like old doo-wop a, a lot, and I have a lot of that on my jukebox, but... Uh, what I prefer are the ones with the really finely crafted lyric and done as cleanly as possible. Uh, two guitars, bass, drums, my favorite setup. And after that comes the wall. But um, I tried to combine those two with the song The Blue Mask 
to I wanted to have my my wall and eat it, so to speak, and still understand the words. And I've been working very hard on the lyrics. Um, I like to think I progressed with the lyrics, and I think I really have. And I work on them before recording sessions now, and I just don't make them up in the studio, which was what I used to do. But uh, the new improved Lou now uh, works on them beforehand, and corrects little errors. So what is Lou's comfort zone? I can give my lyrics a really good reading since I understand them, which gives me an advantage over anybody else. And that within that context, I'm good. And within the context of my own little songs, little plays with all the little characters in my little songs, performing them, I'm good. But taken out of that context, I don't think I'm very good. Walk on the Wild Side will always be associated with Lou Reed. He reveals why he thinks it became a hit. It was the last thing that would have crossed my mind in a million years. Uh, to this day, I have ideas about why it got popular, but I put it down to the doo-doo-doos and the catchy bass hook, and that's it. Um, I never would have figured it to be a hit. I mean, when people say, well, why don't you just write another Walk on the Wild Side and then go retire? I said, well, you know... If I could write another one, I guess I would, but it doesn't work that way. It was a fluke. <laughs> so the dudes and the bass. <laughs> the dudes. Well, listen, that is there anything cooler that was ever on Top 40 Radio than that bass just kind of crawling out of the radio? And the dude, 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 like it was so great. You know, another thing I was just reading is that a lot of radio programmers didn't get some of the more salacious lines. They didn't understand the terminology. <laughs> <Thank heavens. laughs> so that's why it got airplay. Like, it's a pretty dirty song. It's a pretty graphic song. And so that's really kind of cool that it was actually way over their heads or under their heads, as it were, to, uh, to air on Top 40 Radio. It worked. His 1973 album, Berlin, was described by Rolling Stone at the time as a disaster. <laughs> he had other hopes for it. I would have loved for that to be a movie. I thought it had a lot of visual possibilities to it. And it was very dramatic, you know, and uh, the arrangements were so great. Yeah, it really worked nicely. And I thought it had a lot of emotional impact that, that would have uh, communicated itself to people uh, then, which I guess we're talking about 73, 74. And, and again now, although nobody's called me up and said, can we make a film of Berlin? So I guess... Uh, Unless I ran it around myself, which I don't intend to do. Uh, that's just another idea that'll go by the boards. He talks about why he wrote The Day John Kennedy Died from the Blue Mask so many years after the event. I didn't think about it. And then I was sitting around writing, and that came out. I was just really surprised, to say the least. And I had to work very, very hard on it because it was such a touchy, delicate subject. And I didn't want to seem maudlin, but I... When it came out, I thought to myself, uh, this is something very important to me that I'm very serious about, and that changed my life when it happened. And enough time has gone by that I think I can write about it. And also, I'm not the only one who was around there. <laughs> you know, A lot of other people can certainly relate to this, You know, and it, it might be... A good thing. Yeah, just another one of those artists that was really terribly affected by JFK's assassination. Lou vividly describes his struggles as a performer. I've never been straight on stage really long enough to be able to say whether I liked it or not. I mean, 
by the end of a night I'd be drunk. I mean, in my, you know, usually people say, catch the second show, but in my case, they'd be saying, catch the first one, you know, I guess before he falls off the stage, you know, and that's not really any good. And I, I, I'm comfortable on stage if I'm behind the guitar and I'm behind the songs and I'm in the character, but me personally, no. Oh, man. Drunk most of the time. Well, I guess that's not, not surprising considering, you know, that that world that he lived in and was part of for all those years. I think a lot of artists turn to a lot of different sources to mm-hmm. sort of numb out before hitting the stage. I'm currently reading a book about David Bowie, and it's fantastic. You know, I'm about three quarters of the way through, and Bowie just says in it, he says, if I could give anybody any advice at all, don't take drugs. And don't get hooked on alcohol. It just, you waste so much of your life. And it was shocking because drugs were a huge part of his career in the late 60s and throughout the 70s and even in the early 80s. So it was kind of refreshingly shocking to hear Bowie say that. Mm. Mm. I've never heard Lou comment about it. (laughs) The Velvet Underground, by the way, was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. In 2009, Lou performed with... Metallica at the Hall of Fame's 25th anniversary. And in 2015, he was posthumously inducted as a solo artist by Patti Smith. How perfect. Mm. And one other note, there's a spider in Spain called the Luridia, (laughs) so named because it has a velvet body and it lives underground. (laughs) Only on Famous Last Words, ladies and gentlemen. For sure. And that does it for this week's edition. Our show was produced, as always, by Adam Karsh. That was a lot of fun, Christopher. Sure was, Tom. We'll see you next week. <laughs>